Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature, spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical applications. You're listening to a Community Perspectives episode with Dr. Isaac Hernandez. I'm David. And I'm Marla. And today we'll be discussing the paper titled The State of Spinal Cord Injury Respiratory Rehab in Latin America, which was published in the January to March 2022 edition of the Journal of the International Society of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine. This paper was submitted by Asia's Americas Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Isaac Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is the Associate Professor at UT Health in Houston, an SCI staff physician at the Institute of Research and Rehabilitation at Memorial Hermann, Program Director of the SCI Fellowship and Chair of the Americas Committee for Asia. Welcome, Dr. Hernandez. Hi, Marla. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great opportunity, and, uh, and it's an honor to be here. We are so excited to have you, and this is a really, really cool paper. Again, uh, another awesome submission from our Americas Committee. Can you talk a little bit about what respiratory rehabilitation really is and who might be affected and who may need, from a spinal cord perspective, who may actually need respiratory rehabilitation and how you know people with new spinal cord injuries or those with chronic injuries might be affected but from the respiratory side of things. Sure thing, Marla. I think that the, the most important thing for me to highlight is actually two things. Number one, our listeners may or may not know, especially during the first year after a spinal cord injury, we care a lot about what's going on with the ability to breathe and with the lungs because they can lead to a lot of complications as bad as leading to death, of course. So patients after such an injury during the first year are at very high risk. I think that there's oftentimes a common misconception that it's only those patients with a spinal cord injury that have a very high injury. And what I mean by that is like, you know, at the neck level or high up on the neck, what we call like high cervical injuries with patients that end up needing a breathing machine or end up needing a tracheostomy to be able to breathe, that those are the only ones at risk. Of course, they are at risk and they're possibly the ones at the highest risk, but important to highlight that they're not the only ones. In general, because of the way of how we're built and meant to, to breathe, you know, we all have breathing muscles. And what I often tell my patients is, just like we have muscles that helps us move our arms and our legs, we have muscles that helps us breathe. And just like those in the arms or legs have, could have gotten, could have been affected by the injury where now they're weak or weaker, well, the same thing can happen to your breathing muscles. So those muscles may not be able to do the job the same way they used to, which puts you at risk both for your ability to breathe and just as importantly, your ability to protect your airway. In simple terms, what I mean by that is if you have secretions, like, you know, any human body produces, we have the ability to cough things out potentially, or, you know, under normal circumstances, whenever we want, and with a good amount of strength from our muscles that allows us to cough and get those secretions out. But after a spinal cord injury, this can be significantly limited. And if we have secretions and or food and or liquids go back into the lungs, that can lead to a lot of complications that can let, then lead to as worse, uh, as bad outcomes as death. So not only those that are on breathing machines or have tracheostomies are at risk, 
the higher your injury, meaning the closer to your neck or, you know, closer to your shoulder area, if you will, uh, being the area where things go from quote unquote normal to different, well, the, the higher risk you're going to have for having such complications. So respiratory rehab involves trying to, from a spinal cord injury point of view, trying to identify these issues and trying to manage them as best as possible to try and allow for safe respiration and allow for a protected airway that's going to help us prevent as much as possible these complications we talked about. So Dr. Hernandez, a lot of folks here in the States where we're speaking will remember after their surgery, if they acquired a spinal cord injury from trauma, that they had this incentive spirometer and those little balls they had to float, right? So let's say they were to acquire a spinal cord injury in Latin America, where your paper was focusing on respiratory rehabilitation. Would they have had an incentive spirometer, similar tools they would have experienced? That is actually an excellent question that, to be honest, I don't know the exact answer to, but I will definitely try and find out. I know that doesn't help <laughs> answer the question right this minute, but what I know in general is that potentially the access to any kind of tools may be limited. I'm going to dare and say, as we've spoken about behind the scenes about other, uh, other topics, that in big centers, that is either something like that or something that would accomplish something similar will be available and would have been available. Yet in rural areas, in areas where there's no specific know-how about caring for patients with you know, restrictive lung disease with a, a neuromuscular injury where I can't really say what necessarily would be available. We've spoken about, uh, you know, in a different episode, how although there's very, very big differences between Latin America and the U.S. in terms of the healthcare system, that there could also, there can also be some overlap in terms of what's available. And what I mean by that right now is just, I believe it was three days ago on Monday, I got a question from someone I know that is a provider here in the U.S. And they had a question that was actually respiratory rehab related, where they were asking about, you know, specific exercises that potentially their patients could do in the region, which is in a part of the country where I'm going to dare and say this provider I was talking to is probably the only spinal cord injury trained provider in the whole state. And so what I did is I connected her with um, our respiratory therapy educator and connected her to our speech language pathologist who is our lead for our uh, managing our vent patients. What I'm trying to say is I had the ability and the uh, option to do that and connect her with the best possible people. I doubt that that's an option, unfortunately, that is available in Latin America, whether it's for an exercise question or a DME-related question. Perhaps uh, with the gap we're trying to bridge nowadays with our work, that is something that I've never gotten that specific question, but something similar that we can continue to help out with and work towards. But I'm definitely going to have to get back to you on that one, David, and, and I will. I promise I will, because now you may be curious. Isaac, on that, I've heard these stories of, let's say, someone with a cervical spinal cord injury, and they have to if you will, relearn how to breathe, retraining their breathing muscles so they can get to the point where they can breathe independently. And the book on the belly is the age-old trick I've heard about, right? So that's low tech. What 
what would you say from Latin America, us here in the States that we could learn about respiratory training and spinal cord injury um, that might, might be able to trickle up? Oh, you're really trying to make me think now, which I, I really like. Off the top of my head, I don't know that there's been something specific that's been highlighted. One thing that, and I know we we, we kind of spoke about that before, is I don't know how, how fully aware people are from the point of view of something as quote-unquote simple or basic as doing quad coughing, again, as we spoke about before. But I, I, I will dare and say that it's not something necessarily known throughout, or even more interestingly, perhaps is we have some committee members that are specifically one who is both a physical therapist and a tetraplegic. And so he's a, an awesome resource because he can wear both hats, you know, both the provider and the consumer hat. And I know that a lot of the information that he gets in terms of how he goes about his life doesn't come from a provider because there's not necessarily a provider in, 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 in his part of the world that is necessarily specifically SCI trained. So that information instead comes from, from his community, you know, from his peers. Specifically, he is a wheelchair rugby national team member. And so he's very well connected with, with his, you know, teammates and from uh, uh, players from other parts of the country, uh, from other countries within the region. And I know that he gets a lot of his information from there. One of the interesting things, David, is that unfortunately, a lot of the patients that end up on a vent with a trach that eventually would have reached that point that you're describing, which is, okay, now we're working on, you know, winning you off the vent. Now we're working on decannulating you. Those patients never make it. So I actually wonder, and it would be an interesting research question as well, you know, how many patients are actually making it and how many patients are actually successfully being weaned and or decannulated despite potentially not having a consistent source of information or a standard uh, standardized care across the region in terms of how this patient should be managed. As we very well know, because we experience here this in the U.S. as well, oftentimes our patients in the ICU setting will be weaned potentially too, too quickly or too fast where patients end up being, you know, reintubated or, or put back on the vent, or by the time they come to acute rehab and they're off the vent, and we shortly after have to put them back on the vent because we know they're struggling. And we know that change, approaching it differently in a more slow manner, I always tell my patients, think of this as, you know, tra you're training for a marathon, not for a sprint to get you off the vent. When we identify the signs that tell us that this patient has a good wean weaning potential, and I must say, and I've given several talks in Latin America as it relates to the respiratory management of our patients, that uh, it's still in its early stages. We, we've spoken about in some of our other episodes about one rehab provider wearing many different hats and about the interdisciplinary team. The different team members in many ways do exist in Latin America, but the ability for them to connect oftentimes is staggered. And what I mean by that is, ICU will do their ICU thing. If you have, whether it's a physiatrist or perhaps a physical therapist involved in the care in the ICU setting, I think that's like the icing on the cake, but not very common. And then as we, as we spoke about, not often do we have inpatient rehab. And so then there's a big gap and then you end up on the outpatient setting. But now you're potentially detached from the pulmonologist that might've helped you at the beginning or you know the infectious disease expert or whomever it may be. 
So now it's rehab working, yes, with the different rehab team members, but not even necessarily every facility is going to have access. They may have access to a physiatrist, but not necessarily access to a speech language pathologist or access to a specific PT and OT that are devoted to neurological care. But rather, like you've mentioned before, Marla, perhaps one therapist that kind of wears both hats. So there's different strategies that have been sought in, in Latin America. I, I, I know of a provider in Mexico specifically who actually has put together a team that does home visits. And even she has identified ways with at least some of the private insurances that they'll actually pay for that or cover it. So you have a physiatrist, a PT, an OT, a speech language pathologist, if appropriate, works with a urologist that knows about you know neurourology, so on and so forth. But that is hands down the exception not the norm. And so I'm sure that tricks adapted to, to the region have come up. And perhaps what we need to do, among other things ourselves as a group, is being able to identify them more specifically so that we can put them out there. And so that way, someone that is that has come up with something really cool in Mexico can be seen by someone in Ecuador and put it in practice, you know? And our guy from our committee in Argentina has done some of that with some stuff he's done on, on online, but uh, there's always room for doing more, of course. Dear listeners, tips and tricks, send them in to <laughs> us, please. We'll highlight them. Yeah, I, I think one of the really interesting things about the spinal cord community is that it's it's kind of small everywhere. You know, it's even worldwide you could say that the spinal cord community is a small community and you know like you had mentioned about the physical therapist that also you know has tetraplegia like that's such an incredible resource regardless of where in the world that you're living because spinal cord is a small community so how many people in the world are physical therapists and have tetraplegia probably not too many and the national rugby wheelchair player you know yes yeah please don't let me leave that out that's probably the most awesome part but yes i think that's really interesting and kind of brings to mind so i thought one of the really interesting parts of this paper was the timing so this paper, you know, you you guys sent the survey out April 2020. So this is, you know, right in the height of the right in the height of the pandemic. And so I was wondering if while you know you were collecting the surveys and communicating with these different communities, if you noticed, you know, any differences with respiratory care specifically for people with spinal cord injuries, you know, during COVID-19 pandemic and maybe the pandemic increased access to care, respiratory care in some ways, or increased access to communication, like you had mentioned, given just the virtual aspect of things, or any real like differences between how the pandemic affected populations maybe in Latin America? Yeah, I think it, it certainly did in, 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 in many ways. I mean, overall, of course, but as it relates to what we're talking about, Certainly, as I, I'm sure it, it happened to, 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 to you guys as well, is and, and the part of the reason why the, the timing of, of the survey and all that, because all of a sudden we were all divided into different groups of patient care, right? So we couldn't all be at the hospital at the same time. We have to be, be backups for those on the front lines and, and help each other out. So that did allow for more time to do academic work, which is you know one silver lining of the situation, of course. 
like I've mentioned before, Mexico has a formal degree in respiratory rehab. And so certainly that allows, certainly speaking for myself, to connect with some of them and to, among other things, do research. We also put together a manual for providers in Latin America and how to help address this, the pandemic and caring for patients. From a general rehab point of view, we, we contributed to the SCI component, but it was a, a manual that helped all other kinds of patients as well. But just the ability to connect with this subspecialist that exists in the region. And I would dare and say that just like we were connecting with them, because the people that participated in all these collaborations were all over the region. And so people within Latin America were also, I think, trying to reach out to each other, certainly as providers, I'm sure as individuals with spinal cord injuries and such as well. And it was one other great example or opportunity where people, even if they were not in person and you know, even worse in this case, because people had to be isolated or needed to stay away from, from public areas, where they still have the ability to, to email, to WhatsApp is number one in, in Latin America way to communicate long distance and continue to allow that. And I think that's carried over to, to, to this day and, and, and is here to stay overall. Not only the ability to communicate, which is you know kind of a human nature, but the ability to kind of rally together with certain topics or with, with things that are maybe not, not very prevalent or very existent in one region. But now that we, we've kind of, shorten the, the gap or the distances, right? So even if myself, I'm in Houston and my colleague is in, in Buenos Aires, we're chatting in real time, trying to address an issue, whether it is answering a question, providing a link getting a video. One thing that I, I, I value a lot about our colleague that we just described, uh, who is in Argentina, our wheelchair rugby team member, the, he's put together a video. I use it for my training all the time, for my trainees. It's basically a day in the life of someone with tetraplegia. And what I always say is, he's not the only one in the world that does this. We know this. We know that there are other individuals out there. One of the things I love about his video, though, is it's everything in one video, compiled. You don't have to look up online, you know, the driving part or the wheelchair rugby part or the kayaking part or the teaching part or the transfer part. It's all put together so nicely done by him. He's actually our IT guy, by the way, among other things. He's, he's just a rock star. And uh, he did it in Spanish, but, uh, you know, it's subtitled into English. I believe it's been subtitled into Vietnamese as well. I'm not exactly sure why that language specifically, but as we know nowadays, it can be subtitled into everything and any, any language, really. And so even then, he, during that video, you guys should actually check it out, by the way. I'll, I'll send it to you. He shows something, he got together with a group of friends that I think are engineers, and they designed together a little device that allows him to basically get in and out of his apartment and allows him to use his regular key to, to insert it, you know, turn it and open his apartment door. And they printed it in a 3D printer. And... They actually gave a shout out on on the video. There's like a little little thing that comes up on the screen for like the little company for his friends that did the 3D printing and helped him. What I'm trying to say is that they're so resourceful, so ingenious. And one thing that I've learned from him, from Marcelo, is he may be labeled as this or that neurological level of injury. He doesn't care about that much, really. He cares about what he wants to do and what he needs to do to accomplish it. So if I would say one thing about him that I think can be 
hopefully expand it to anyone listening. And that's the way I always described him. And I, I've told him so multiple times, you know, directly to him is that I think he's an inspiration. And we all have met such patients and such individuals. Again, he's not the only one, but his ability to thrive in an environment that 100% is not meant to be pro spinal cord injury individuals is, you know, outstanding. Absolutely. I appreciate that you brought up the video. I think that's a really, first of all, that sounds awesome. Please send it over. But I think that's a really good topic as well, because, you know, I'm assuming this is just something that's like accessible on YouTube, that somebody could help educate themselves just by watching, you know, a video. And you, you know, you brought up the Sokokwakov before, and, you know, obviously nothing is quite like getting your hands on and learning something. But, you know, when resources are limited or things like the pandemic happen, like you mentioned, where we're not able to be hands-on quite as much, those educational resources can really be, you know, for lack of a better term, really life-saving for a lot of people. Is there any other, you know, resources that you tend to use or um, you've noted that your colleagues in Latin America tend to use? Uh, is YouTube kind of a big thing there as far as education-wise? that might be accessible for people or caregivers? Sure, no, uh, uh, thanks for asking, actually, because, uh, yeah, this video that I, I've been describing is, um, it's available on the Asia YouTube channel. And we have, I'm blanking right now on the, on the exact number of what I'm going to say, I think I'm shortchanging it, but at least 50 or 60 videos that we have put up there. Now, most of them were are about talks and they're geared towards, you know, healthcare providers. But certainly his video, and one of the cool things about him is that then I, you know, I, I've given him feedback or I ask him questions and I mean Marcelo, and he then asked me, hey, I can put a new video together if you want that addresses this or that, that can help, whether it's a trainee or a consumer or whomever it may be. And the, the other thing that, that comes to mind, it's kind of random, but uh, one of our committee members uh, has a strong interest, for instance, in, in sexuality. And she has put together, along with one of her colleagues who is an educator in Latin America, uh, uh, you know, a sexuality manual for, for those with disability. That's just an example that I think is very, very nicely made and, and approaches things in a way that is very, very up to date. And one other example that comes to mind, and this is like I was mentioning earlier today, where I'm used to being on, on your guys' seat and during a podcast, not where I'm sitting right now, where along with, with a group with Dr. Suzanne Grow and, and her team in, in Washington, a set of podcasts that we do ourselves in Spanish, it's called Bladder Bus en Español, where we address topics related anywhere from the bladder to sexuality in any, any area, uh, you know, bladder and beyond, if you will. We do so in Spanish and we do so geared on the one hand towards healthcare providers and on the other hand towards, you know, the community. And there's also, of course, the English version. And to be clear, they're not direct translations. We're all doing kind of our own thing in our own language, but we're roughly trying to approach the same kind of topics. So I don't know how it works in this podcast, but I wonder if perhaps one way I've seen it on other podcasts where, you know, when you guys finally publish it or upload it, when there's always like those links at the bottom of the podcast, where we can include whether it's Asia's YouTube video link or for this other podcast or whatever it may be. But yeah, I think that there's a, a, some other resources that are out there that we've put together that we, we, we feel can be helpful. Check the show notes. We will add those, no doubt. In the 
American Spinal Injury Association's YouTube channel for playlist specified videos. There's at least 31. So got it. And counting. There you go. And counting. Exactly. Awesome. So, you know, one final question just to kind of wrap everything up. This paper is obviously very interesting. I think, you know, from a provider perspective, from a research perspective, I think it brings a lot of light kind of into things that we, you know, practicing in the U.S. may not even be aware of. But how can the community itself, person living with SCI, maybe in Latin America, how can they use this paper or what can they really learn from this paper that can help them, you know, in their future care? Myself, not being in Latin America for the past many years, but having grown up in Latin America, having gone to school in Latin America, including medical school, so trying to wear that hat, I think that one of the big take-homes is, oh, what you guys have on that paper? I knew that. Like, you didn't have to, you know, get all this fancy stuff done and, and to let me know that. I already knew that, whether you're a, a medical student in, in Mexico or a patient in Chile or whatever. But I think that part of what we're trying to do as a group is to put in writing and documents what is known by most because it's not there otherwise one way in which i've tried to describe it is if you took a you know a, a, a screenshot of a map of latin america you know the contours of of its geography when we started our project or our adventure everything was in black and what we're trying to do is to color it little by little and there's some repetition in the work we're doing again not reinvent the wheel if we don't have to, with things that are for the most part known, but we don't, but do we really know? And so we're proving whether that's the case or not, because that's just the foundation, right? It's such an early step geared towards higher and bigger goals, which can include, of course, having more people aware and trained in caring for individuals that have a spinal cord injury, for policy change, in, in the region to have more accessible cities and countries for everyone. That is like the end game, right? That's like the perfect world scenario that we would love to get towards. But we also knew that we couldn't skip steps. You know, we can't ask uh, a local or a government, for example, or an NGO to help us with this or that. Well, based on what, you know? So we still have, we have to lay down the foundation first. So for anyone that may think accurately, well, we already knew that. Yes, I agree with that. But there's still a, a method behind that madness, if you will. What I would say is we basically have contacts that have an interest in spinal cord injury, essentially in every, in every country. And that includes a place like Cuba, where they're awesome, but they have very limited internet access. So we, we hear from them every so often only, but even in such a country. And um, so what I'm saying is, I know it's easier said than done, but don't give up on trying to find either the right provider or the provider that is willing to bat for you and keep asking and keep looking. Because the reason why we got over a thousand responses when we did the survey, it started with one person that has all this other connections. And oftentimes people get referred back to this person 
And it turns out that everybody behind the scenes knows know each other. They just didn't know. So it's a very, as, it, as you mentioned earlier, it's a very small SEI community worldwide and regionally as well. Most people know each other. And I think we're adding and expanding to that. So I think it's asking, asking, asking. And now that we have the internet, of course, well, that can also help bridge a lot of gaps, right? So easier said than done, I realize that. But uh, most of our patients, including Latin America, have access you know, to their smartphone or an iPad, and, and they do a lot of stuff themselves. We've had people join workshops from the ICU as a tetraplegic with their phone in Latin America. So it is possible. There is a way. It's great, Isaac. Perfect way to wrap it up. I'll just say, looking at our podcast analytics within the top five cities where we get downloads, uh, Fortaleza in Brazil is in the top five. And in the top 10, we have Bogota in Colombia. So shout out to our Latin American listeners. And thanks so much for being here, Dr. Hernandez. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out as well to them. We appreciate everything you do. And thank you to you, you too and all the behind the scenes partners. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendation of AGES Education Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Grove, your producer hosts David McMillan and Marla Petrillo, our editor Abby Fox, production assistant James Concepcion, and AGES Front Office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI's Perspectives Podcast at gmail.com.